second to last week of the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you will be saying, woohoo, I'm tired of the Sermon on the Mount. That's okay, we're almost there. Uh, but, uh, but Jesus has given us the heart of the Beatitudes and says, this is what it's like to be a child of God. And then he has taken us through a journey of how to live out the law and the prophets, not with our heads, but with our hearts and with our actions in ways that go the extra mile, that love your enemy, that treat others the way you want to be treated, and that uh, if you judge, you judge mercifully, and all these things, and be generous to the poor. He's given us all this stuff and says, this is what the path looks like. And so as he closes today, he challenges us to stay on the path. And so that's where we pick up if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Matthew chapter 7, starting in the 13th verse, where Jesus says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it watch out for false prophets they come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ferocious wolves by their fruit you will recognize them do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles likewise every good tree bears good fruit but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Can you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit. Uh, come, Lord Jesus. These are your words. Uh, uh, help me. Help us wrestle with them in a way that keeps us on the narrow road, uh, especially on the narrow road when times are challenging. And so let your Holy Spirit um, speak through my words and through my heart and my life um, in ways that will draw us all closer, God, to your, uh, your holy life, for you are a redeemer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I saw a meme yesterday from a pastor friend of mine, uh, Pastor Al, and uh, Pastor Al in this meme noted that when you go on a trip of a thousand miles, you must always begin with the first step that was the first half of the meme 
And then he went on, the meme went on to say this. It went on to say, um, it went on to say, uh, my mind just went blank. That's what it went on to say. No. Then it went on to, he went on to say this. He went on to say, if you don't know your destination, then you're never going to get there. You can head out on any road you want to, but you won't get to where you need to be. And brothers and sisters, today Jesus gives us this message. As he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, he brings it into focus and says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And many love to go through that gate, but only few find the narrow gate. And so Jesus is pointing us and saying, Listen, if your destination is life, if your destination is the kingdom of God, if your destination is to be the kind of child of God God means for you to be, you've got to start with your first step being through the narrow gate. You've got to start with your first step being through the narrow gate. And then he goes on and shares that the, the other gate is broad, it's, it's wide, it's easy, many go those ways. There are many voices out there that'll try to tell you how to live your life. And they'll tell you, if you want to live your life well, be successful. Or if you want to live your life well, make it a party of pleasure. Or if you want to live well, you know, uh, make a two million, three million, four million dollars, right? You've got all sorts of voices telling you, if you want to live your best life, that's the way to go. But brothers and sisters, all those voices are not the voice of God. The voice of Jesus says, go through the narrow gate. Go down the narrow road. And brothers and sisters, if we begin to get through that narrow gate, we will find that we will be changed and transformed by the journey. I kind of think of it like this. Have you ever been hiking? Or maybe, if not hiking, maybe been caving? And you've gone to those spaces where you're in the crevice of the rocks and the trail says you've got to go through the crevice? Now, if any of you are fearful of tight spaces, you know, that's like the last place you want to be. But yet, I think Jesus is saying being on the narrow road is a lot like this. If we take the narrow road, the narrow road will begin to shape us and mold us into God's heavenly image. And so that's what I want to encourage us today as we reflect on our life, reflect on where we are, who's, well, which, which road are we taking? Are we on the broad road or the narrow road? And in addition, Jesus gives us two warnings today of two primary ways that can pull us off the narrow road and stick us on the broad road before we even know it. And so we want to look more deeply at these two ways that pull us off the narrow road. The first way, he says, is watch out for false voices. The second one is watch out for a false faith. Watch out for false voices. Watch out for false faith. 
Both of these things will lead you to destruction. So if we look at the false voice part, he says in verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. That is, they look good on the outside. They talk well. Their vision sounds good. The things they're going to do may sound great. But on the inside, the thing you don't see at first, inside they are ferocious wolves who are out for themselves and themselves only, and they are out to destroy the sheep. So he warns us, watch out for the false prophets. How are we supposed to recognize them, though, Jesus? Well, Jesus says it's going to be very obvious if you have your spiritual uh, feelers, finders on, spiritual whatever on, because good prophets bring forth good fruit. False prophets bring forth bad fruit. So watch for the fruit of their life the fruit of their decisions, the fruit of how they handle things, the fruit of what they do. Now, as we look at this together, first, I may need to say, well, what's a prophet, right? Oftentimes, when you think of prophets in the Bible, you think of people who foretell the what? Future. That's not really a biblical prophet. I mean, that can be a part, but it's just a, it's a sliver of what a prophet's all about. A prophet's job is to tell you what God's heart is, what his truth is, what he wants for you. Uh, it's, it's the prophet's job to, to tell you God's truth. If you want to be God's children, if you want to stay on the narrow way, then you want to hear what a prophet has to say because the prophet's job is to correct us in the journey. And in our lives, um, we see this in both our secular society and in the church in both areas are important together. First of all, in our secular society, in our Constitution, right, we have some initial rights that were like the basic, most important rights of our Constitution. One of those rights is freedom of the press, right? Freedom of the press. Why would they put that in the Constitution? Why? Because they knew the importance of the prophetic voice of the press. It's the press's job to tell the truth. It's the press's job to share with us what's going on. It's the press's job to help us be informed of what's happening both in the halls of power and in our local streets. And so the press being free from being overseen, especially by the power or the corporations or all those things, is of critical importance. And our founders, Thomas Jefferson and, and all those, they knew that key was essential. To contrast this right now, if we happen to live in Russia, for instance, or if we happen to live in China, for instance, right? And you're listening to the press in Russia, 90% of the press in Russia is exactly what Vladimir Putin has told them to tell the people. And that's not a good thing. Amen? In China, the Chinese government tells the press, this is what we want to tell the people. Now, there's, I think there's a little more freedom in China than I know that there is in Russia. But still, in both cases, when we hinder the prophetic voice, it harms us from recognizing the truth 
of what's going on around us. So we're looking for the true prophet rather than the false prophet. We're looking for good fruit rather than bad fruit. And so how do we do this? What does this look like? Well, in the Old Testament, there were, there were two roles that I think were prophetic roles that were central. I mean, really, there were three roles, and all three are important, but, but we want to mainly focus on two. One was the role of the ancient king as leader of God's people. In the Old Testament, the king was the one who shaped the faith and life of all God's people. And so if you had a good king, that king would model a faithful heart, a faithful life, and that would affect on down to the families and everything that the nation did together as a people. A second, though, voice was the voice of the prophet. And it was the prophet's job to tell the king and to tell everyone else when things had gotten out of whack and out of line. Again, they had the job of telling the truth. And so um, when we think about this for our lives, I think the role of prophet still occurs in two areas. Secularly, it still occurs with the press, and that's why freedom of the press is important. The second area it occurs is in our choice of leadership. We don't want to, I don't want to be putting ferocious leaders in office that are going to eat and tear up things, right? To me, that's what I hear. And so, for instance, when we look at the Old Testament and we look at the ideal leader and shepherd of the Old Testament, anybody have a guess in who that might be? King David. A man after God's own heart. That's the kind of leader that the Old Testament lifts up and says, this is the kind of prophetic leader that our nation aspires to. What made David so special? Was he a perfect leader? No, right? In moments, he did some very bad things. He was unfaithful. He murdered a faithful servant of his to get his wife. Even David was not a perfect leader. And so here's the first deal. If you're looking for a perfect leader to vote for, you're not going to find him. That's just, if David's not the perfect leader, then nobody, only Jesus would be, and Jesus is not quite here with us except by the power of his spirit. So, but what, what did King David had that made him a great leader? Well, this is what King David had. The people on the outside of David's life could criticize King David. And he could have taken off their heads. But over and over and over again, when people criticized King David, he didn't. He thought, God may be trying to say something to me and to the people through that person. And so I am going to, to let them say what they want to say. And God will judge them. If they've been too mean to me, I trust God will take care of it. The second thing he did was with the previous king, right? King Saul was, was a mess toward the end of his reign. He wasn't a good king. He wanted to kill David if he could. And David had two chances to kill King Saul and take the kingship for himself. And both times he did not do it because he respected the anointing of the king as sacred. 
And that king was to be respected even if he was doing a horrible job and even if he was out to kill David himself. So what we see in David is a heart of mercy, a desire to shepherd God's people in a way that made them better and stronger and healthier together than they were on their own, a desire to to see God bring about the best for the people of God a thousand years B.C. Couldn't we use some leaders like that today? Right? And what I see, brothers and sisters, in King David is I see a man after God's own heart, a man who lived out the beatitude teaching of the Sermon on the Mount a thousand years before Jesus ever preached it. A thousand years before Jesus preaches this sermon, King David checks all the boxes. He checks the beatitude boxes of be humble and, and be pure in heart and, and you know, seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. He, was, he had a heart to do what God wanted him to do. He wanted to treat others the way they, they, he would want to be treated. He lived by the golden rule. He went the extra mile. He loved his enemies. He was merciful in his judgments. These qualities and characteristics of King David made him the ideal leader of the Old Testament. And so when Jesus gives us the key and says, watch for their fruits, one person you can go to is see how King David did things or see how Jesus even more did things and say, do the prophets I know of, do the leaders I know of do those kind of things as well? That's the test. What is the good fruit? The good fruit is that everything else Jesus has already taught That's the kind of person that this person tries to live in day in and day out. A person who goes the extra mile, a person who is merciful in judgment, a person who is generous to the poor and those who are in need, a person who sets God's kingdom first, a person who uh, is spiritually impoverished and has a pure heart and all those kinds of things. This is the qualities that we're looking for in our prophets. And so I want us to take a little deeper look, though, at an example of what a false prophet looks like. You want to do that with me? We're going to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 18. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, um, there are two kings in this story. King Jehoshaphat is a son of David, and he's king of Jerusalem. But then Israel, the the second uh, ten tribes, had their own king, and that king was King Ahab. And I think most of you know about King Ahab, right? King Ahab's life was a mess his whole life, and Elijah had a lot of problem with Ahab and his wife. But in this case, King Jehoshaphat is talked about as being a king like his father David. Not quite as good, but still like his father David, while his Ahab is on a totally different page. And they want to go to war together. And Jehoshaphat had married one of Ahab's daughters, and so they're kind of uh, allies together. And so uh, King Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, will you go to war with me against Ramoth Gilead? Let's take it back for the kingdom. And Jehoshaphat said, sure, that's a great idea. It'll make us all stronger. I'm with you. I'm your brother. Let's go do it. 
He says, but first, before we go do it, we probably ought to seek out God's will, right? We want to know what God thinks about this war. And so he go, they go and he says to Ahab, Ahab, why don't you call together the prophets of the Lord and let them give us guidance as to whether this is a good idea or not. So Ahab says, okay, yeah, I've got plenty of prophets. We'll just let them all come forward and, and we'll hear what they have to say. And so one after the other, the prophets came forward and began to say, yes, yes, King Ahab, and yes, King Jehoshaphat, go. You're going to win. There was one prophet in particular. I think his name was the prophet Zechariah, and the prophet Zechariah had this horny hat that looked like a bull's horns, and he was going around like this. King, go destroy him. You're going to gore him, right? Just go for it. And one after the other, one tenth prophet, the twentieth prophet, the hundredth prophet, two hundredth, they're all saying, go for it. But as the prophets go by, Jehoshaphat notices something. Jehoshaphat notices none of these prophets are prophets of the Lord, the God of Israel and Judah. And so after all 400 prophets have their say, Jehoshaphat says, that's great, but Ahab can't we find at least one prophet of the Lord and see what they have to say in addition? And so King Ahab said, yeah, there's this one guy named Micaiah, and he is a prophet of the Lord, but I don't like him a whole lot because he never tells me what I want to hear. But I'll invite him in. So they brought, bring in Micaiah, and on the way in, the, guy, the messenger that's bringing in Micaiah says, okay, Micaiah, 400 guys have already told the king this is a great idea, so it probably would be good if you just agreed with them. He's like, eh, uh, we'll see. So Micaiah comes before the king, and they ask, should we go to battle against the Arameans of Ramoth Gilead? And Micaiah says this. Micaiah says, as surely as the Lord lives, well, no, let me see, I, I read the wrong part. He, he basically says, attack and be victorious, for they will be given into your hand. And King Ahab uh, realizes that Micaiah is being sarcastic. Go, king, go, yes, what everybody said, be victorious, go, yep, yep. What, what they said, that's what I say. And so King Ahab says, Micaiah, how, how many times do I have to tell you? Shoot straight with me. Tell me what I need to hear. What do you really think? I know you're just faking. So Micaiah says, okay, king, just know this, if you go to battle today against Ramoth Gilead, Israel's coming home without a king and without a leader. You'll be dead before this day is over. And Ahab blows it off. Ah, see, I told you he never has any good news. So what does he do? He takes Micaiah, he throws him in jail and says, you can eat bread and water till I get back, and then when I get back and prove that you're wrong, then maybe I'll let you out. And so they go to battle. And, uh, and King Ahab, he's thinking way ahead now. He's like, listen, even if he might be right, I can outsmart this thing. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to dress up as a king. I'm going to dress up as just a normal army guy. King Jehoshaphat will let him be the king of the battle. And so they'll think he's me. And so we'll go to battle like that. And so they did. And the Aramean army was challenged to look for Ahab and in particular take Ahab out. Instead, they find King Jehoshaphat because he was in his royal robes, right? 
And so they're chasing down King Jehoshaphat, and finally King Jehoshaphat it talks and doesn't sound like King Ahab, and the other army figures out this is the wrong guy. So they leave Jehoshaphat alone, and Jehoshaphat ends up being okay. But meanwhile, a random archer, randomly shooting, randomly up in the air, hits King Ahab in the back, right between his armor. And he says, take me out of battle. I'm injured. And by that night, King Ahab was dead. He was dead because he listened to the wrong voices. He listened to the wrong voices. And so that's what Jesus is challenging us with. Listen to good voices that bring forth good fruit. So what are some of the keys to this? Well, one, um, I th- one principle, I think, for me is you don't want a prophet that is always going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. You don't want a prophet that always tells you exactly what you want to hear. For me as your pastor, I want to be prophetic as much as I can. I want to step on your toes in love sometimes. And you may not like it. You may not agree with me. I'm totally fine with that. But I hope you will wrestle with what I've laid at your feet. Because my voice as a prophet is to just try to bring you to the truth of God's word and trust you with how the Holy Spirit will help you live it out. And if you want a prophet or preacher who never steps on your toes, you are asking for a false prophet in your life, in your church, and in your ministry. And it will lead you to the place of disaster and destruction. All right? How does this work in my life with secular stuff? Um, For me, the prophetic voice of the press, this also means I don't want to listen just to the press that tells me what I want to hear. I don't want to just listen for the voice of the press that tells me what I want to hear. On my laptop right now, I have two web pages open. One is Fox News, one is CNN. And I spend time looking at both of them to see how they're handling stuff differently. And every once in a while, Fox will find something that CNN doesn't. And every once in a while, CNN will find some things that Fox doesn't. But it's the way that I make sure I'm hearing the whole story. And our culture and our nation would be much healthier if we all did that together. Because false prophets tell you what you want to hear. And it's important to be challenged by voices on the other side. And the same goes with leaders. In our vote for leadership, whether it's national or local or state, again, what I hunger for are leaders that remind me of King David. Leaders that show fruit that match up with the Sermon on the Mount. Leaders that are merciful in judgment. Leaders that go the extra mile. Leaders that love and respect their enemies, though they don't always agree with them boy, I'd love to see more of that in politics. 
leaders that care for the poor and want to invest in finding ways and helping all of us succeed and be the best we can be. All these qualities that Jesus talks about in this that we've looked at for two months, that's the fruit that we're to look for. And our nation will be a lot healthier when we get back to looking for those kinds of leaders and prophets. Okay, that's that piece. That's the big piece. There's another little piece, and that is, secondly, we watch out for false faith. He says, not, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There'll be some on that day who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Those are four words I, I don't want to ever hear. Those are four words I don't want to ever hear. The path to staying on the narrow way is the path Jesus tells us of one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. The one who is not, as he says at the end, an evildoer. Now that word evildoer is a little different. It really means to be lawless. To be lawless. In this whole message, he's talked about following the the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. He's talked about being a people of the law in the Old Testament and following them in the spirit and the heart of that, which means going the extra mile, loving your enemy, you know, all these qualities uh, that he pulls out that the Old Testament never hit on quite as well. And so he challenges us. He says, listen, if we reject being someone who, who uh, wants to follow after God's righteousness, follow after his kingdom, follow after the, the law he has given to guide us, um, then it makes it impossible for us to do the will of the Heavenly Father. The way we choose to do the Father's will is by knowing his word, by learning from it, and then by living it out. And so that's what he challenges us with here, is watch out for false faith. We can fake it. We can fake it. Um, we can have all the right language. We can do an awful lot of good stuff. But Jesus knows at our heart we can still be faking it. And so he challenges us, don't fake it. Instead, make your faith real. The most important thing is, do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? If you know, love, and trust Jesus, and if you trust what he says in this book, and if you try to live it out day by day, Jesus says you will find life to the full. And you will be about doing the will of my Father in heaven. And you will be staying on the narrow road. And so in closing, I, I want to challenge and close this. What road are you on today? How are you doing? How are you doing? I see a lot of you walking the narrow road. And as I think about this, in fact, in, just in the context of where we are as a community, I want to share just a couple of things. One of the things is, is Jesus in his teaching, I can't find anywhere that Jesus in his teaching says, 
the world will know you're my disciples by agreeing on everything together. If that was the case, we would have messed up thousands of years ago because we have made more denominations than anybody in the world knows what to do with. Jesus never said, the world will know you're my disciples by agreeing exactly on everything about teaching and Christian faith. What Jesus does say is the world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another, that's how the world knows who we, whose we are, right? And to love one another, um, he doesn't, I don't think he's talking, he knows he's not talking about the easy times when we all want to sing kumbaya and we want to celebrate and have fun and, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. He's saying, the world sees your allegiance to me when in the difficult and challenging moments you choose to stay on the narrow path and you keep loving one another. You keep loving one another. I know the decision before us has got big stakes, right? It's big stakes for both sides. But from my perspective, I have learned over the years, I am not here to fight God's battles. God will fight God's battles. God knows how we're going to vote in two months. He knows the result. He knows how to bring good out of whatever the result is. And so I am trusting him that he is sovereign and he will take care of us. If we will love one another in the journey, it, it helps us be a healthier community in the moment, and it will help us be a healthier and stronger community when the discernment has occurred. So how we go about this, to me, is more important than what's decided in a couple of months. And I know that messes with some of you. Some of you, you really want me to take sides bad. Um, but I want you to stay on the narrow road. And the narrow road is love each other. And many of you are. But I challenge you again, stay on that narrow road and love each other. I'll close with one more example, and then we'll go home. I didn't have time to read this one at the early service, so I, I really want to read it now. So if it makes you a little late, sorry, but it's not very long. Fred Craddock's story. He was 20 years old. He was going to see Albert Schweitzer. Anybody remember who Albert Schweitzer is? He had read Albert Schweitzer's book, Quest for the Historical Jesus. And he says, I found his Christology woefully lacking, more water than wine. I marked it up, wrote in the margin, raised questions of all kinds. And then one day I read in the Knoxville News Sentinel, Albert Schweitzer was going to be in Cleveland, Ohio to play a dedicatory concert on a big organ at a big church up there. According to the article, he would remain afterward in the fellowship hall for conversation and refreshment. Okay, so I'm going to try to give you just a bit of context. Albert Schweitzer, missionary to Africa, right? He wrote this book called Quest for the Historical Jesus, in which he basically challenges that it's hard to really know is you know what do we really know about the historical Jesus of history and so uh, 
Fred Craddock, the great preacher, his critique at 20 years old is, is that uh, Albert Schweitzer is a bit too progressive for him. And he's got all these questions and he's marked up the book and he's eager to go see Albert Schweitzer so he can throw some questions at him, okay? So here's the story. I bought a Greyhound bus ticket. I went to Cleveland all the way up there. I worked on this quest for the historical Jesus. I laid out my questions. I had my questions on a separate sheet of paper, but I made references to the pages. You said this because I figured if there was a conversation in the fellowship hall, there'd be room for a question or two. So I went there, I heard the concert, I rushed into the fellowship hall, got a seat in the front row, waiting, waited with my lap of questions, and after a while, Albert Schweitzer came in, shaggy hair, big white mustache, stooped, 75 years old. He had played a marvelous concert. You know, he was master organist, a medical doctor, a philosopher, a biblical scholar, a lecturer, a writer, everything. He came in with a cup of tea and some refreshments and stood in front of the group, and there I was, close. Dr. Schweitzer thanked everybody. You've been very warm, hospitable to me. I thank you for it, and I wish I could stay longer among you. But I must go back to Africa. I must go back to Africa because my people are poor and diseased and hungry and dying and I have to go. We have a medical station at Lamborghini. If there's anyone here in this room who has the love of Jesus, would you be prompted by that love to go with me and help them? Craddock says, I looked down at my questions. They were absolutely stupid. I learned again what it means to be a Christian and had hopes that I could be that someday. What Fred Craddock is sharing, brothers and sisters, is he saw in Albert Schweitzer the heart of a man who was living out the Sermon on the Mount and a man who was on the narrow road and though he did not agree with Albert Schweitzer's theology, he found that he was family. And that made all the difference. And may that make all the difference for us on the narrow road. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray.